0: I certainly do. We have finished with A Study in Scarlet, which means today, if you weren't paying attention to the initial scroll, you may not know what we're reading because we finished one book. We're moving on to the next Sherlock book. I made that pretty clear last time, but which one are we going to go with next? Well, I'll tell you this much. I am kind of a fan. I, I enjoy reading things um, in in uh, universe chronological order. So we would call them perhaps... Uh, (laughs) Watsonian chronological order. The the chronological order in which they took place, right, in the the universe, uh, not in which they were published. These are two different things and my intent was to to read them in in in-universe chronological order. Okay, well, how do I make that happen? I did a decent bit of research on this. I did a, I did a decent bit of looking, and there does not appear to be a good consensus for how to do that. There are a few links uh, which will claim to, <laughs> to be this, uh, uh, which will claim to give you the chronological order, but nearly all of them put the Hound of the Baskervilles last, which, as far as I know, is not the final story uh, in the in-universe chronology. And as such, I have decided, you know what? Later on, I am going to try to put these together in 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 universe chronological order. Uh, I will do so in playlists. Uh, But for our purposes here, I have officially decided, and Proteus Spade, I think you will be thankful, I'm going to be releasing, I'm going to be reading these in publishing order. I hope that that can satisfy everyone. Uh, I do think it will give us uh, perhaps a better tour around this character, even though my preference is definitely to go with uh, the in-universe chronology, but uh, publishing chronology is going to be just fine as well. It is it is the order in which Arthur Conan Doyle sort of got to know these characters. And, uh, uh, and an additional bit of news is that... Um, uh, some of the resources that I've looked at have pretty, not universally, but but commonly mentioned that A Study in Scarlet is one of the least sort of polished books in this entire series, one of the least polished stories. Um, Arthur Conan Doyle still kind of getting the hang of the character and the format and uh, the relationship between uh, Watson and Holmes, and as such, um, it is considered uh, one of the least polished, or if you want to be less diplomatic about it. It is fairly widely considered the worst of the Sherlock Holmes stories. The one that we just read. Now, I thought it was kind of a fun ride, which means we're in for great things here. Um, I'm very much excited to uh, continue our progress here. Uh, We are now launching into Sherlock Holmes, The Sign of Four. Sherlock Holmes, The Sign of Four. Now, as with uh, most great mystery stories, the... The order in which items uh, of interest are presented is very, very important. And as such, I'm not really going to give you all much of a primer here, uh, except to say that The Study of Four, I believe, was the second novel. Um, Let me go ahead. Holmes. Excellent. Um... I want to talk a little bit just about the publishing years here. I'm just going to mention them. We're not really going to discuss them. Uh, I just want to bring them up so that y'all are aware of them. Um, Let me see. All right. So A Study in Scarlet released in 1887 as a novel. Um and then uh, in 1890, The Sign of Four, also released as a novel. Now, after that, then we launch into The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, uh, published in 1892, and that is a collection of short stories. So not all of these were were published as novels. Uh, the first two published as novels, and then uh, once we get into The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, um, we are in, uh, they were released, I believe, in a newspaper uh, called... The stand, I want to say? Or the strand. The strand. But, my good folks, it is time for us to embark on once again into the world of Sherlock Holmes. I will remind you, some of these characters are going to have voices that may uh, may come off a little bit rough at first. Um, I will give you an additional reminder that you're going to have to put some of the new stuff out of your mind. If this is your, your, your the first one in this series that you are listening to of mine, you're going to have to put some things out of your head. Phones, the internet, Benedict Cumberbatch. That last one's going to be a tough one, I know. But remember, we are headed way back in time. At the same time, I don't mind a little bit of anachronism. After all, I am using some pretty bebop jazz for uh, (laughs) for our uh, scene intros and outros, and I know for some, for some, that's not the best possible option. But I love it. I love the energy, (laughs) and uh, everybody. I hope you will enjoy as we embark into our second Sherlock Holmes mystery, The Sign of Four. Sign of Four. Chapter One. The Science of Deduction. Sherlock Holmes took a bottle from the corner of the mantelpiece and his hypodermic syringe from its neat morocco case. With his long, white, nervous fingers, he adjusted the delicate needle and rolled back his left shirt cuff. For some little time, his eyes rested thoughtfully upon the sinewy forearm and wrist, all dotted and scarred with innumerable puncture marks. Finally, he thrust the sharp point home, pressing down the tiny piston, and sank onto the velvet lined armchair with a long sigh of satisfaction. Three times a day, for many months, I had witnessed this performance, but custom had not reconciled my mind to it. On the contrary, From day to day I had become more irritable at the sight, and my conscience swelled nightly within me at the thought that I had lacked the courage to protest. Again and again I had registered a vow that I should deliver my soul upon the subject. But there was that in the cool, nonchalant air of my companion which made him the last man with whom one would care to take anything approaching to a liberty. His great powers, his masterly manner, and the experience which I had had of his many extraordinary qualities all made me diffident and backward in crossing him. Yet upon that afternoon, whether it was the bune which I had taken with my lunch or the additional exasperation produced by the extreme deliberation of his manner, I suddenly felt I could hold out no longer. All right, eh Which is it today? I asked. Morphine or cocaine? He raised his eyes languidly from the old black-letter volume which he had opened. It is cocaine, he said. A seven percent solution. Would you care to try it? No, indeed, I answered brusquely. My constitution's not got over the Afghan campaign yet. Can't afford to throw any extra strain on it. He smiled at my vehemence. "'Perhaps you're right, Watson,' he said. "'I suppose that its influence is physically a bad one. "'I find it, however, so transcendentally stimulating "'and clarifying to the mind that its secondary action "'is a small matter at the moment.' "'All right, but consider,' I said earnestly, cost." Your brain may, as you say, be roused and excited, but it's a pathological and morbid process, which involves increased tissue change and may at last leave a permanent weakness. You know too what a black reaction comes upon you. Surely the game is hardly worth the candle. Why should you, for a mere passing pleasure, risk the loss of those great powers with which you've been endowed? Remember, I speak to you not only as a comrade, but as a medical man. one for whose constitution I am somewhat answerable for." He did not seem offended. On the contrary, he put his fingertips together and leaned his elbows on the arm of his chair, like one who has a great relish for conversation. "'My mind,' he said, "'rebels at stagnation. Give me a problem, give me work, give me the most abstruse cryptogram or most intricate analysis, and I am in my own proper atmosphere.' "'I can dispose, then, with artificial stimulants, but I abhor the dull routine of existence. "'I crave for mental exaltation. "'That is why I've chosen my own particular profession, or rather created it, "'for I'm the only one in the world.' "'The only unofficial detective,' I said, raising my eyebrows. "'The only unofficial consulting detective,' he answered. I'm the last and highest court of appeal in detection. When Gregson or Lestrade or Athenley Jones are out of their depths, which, by the way, is their normal state, the matter is laid before me. I examine the data as an expert and pronounce a specialist's opinion. I claim no credit in such cases. My name figures in no newspaper. The work itself pleasure of finding a field for my particular powers is my highest reward, but you have yourself had some experience of my methods of work in the Jefferson Hope case." "'Yes, indeed,' said I cordially. I was never so struck by anything in my life. I even embodied it in a small brochure, the somewhat fantastic title, A Study in Scarlet." He shook his head sadly. "'I glanced over it,' said he. "'Honestly, I cannot congratulate you upon it. "'Detection is, or ought to be, an exact science, "'and should be treated in the same cold and unemotional manner. "'You have attempted to tinge it with romanticism, "'which produces much the same effect as if you had worked a love-story "'or an elopement into the fifth proposition of Euclid.' "'But the romance was there,' I remonstrated. "'Could not temper with the facts. "'Some facts should be suppressed.' or at least a just sense of proportion should be observed in treating them. The only point in the case which deserved mention was the curious analytical reasoning from effects to causes by which I succeeded in unravelling it. I was annoyed at this criticism of a work which had been specially designed to please him. I confess, too, that I was irritated by the egotism which seemed to demand that every line of my pamphlet should be devoted to his own special doings. More than once during the years that I had lived with him in Baker Street had I observed that a small vanity overlay my companion's quiet and didactic manner. I made no remark, however, but sat nursing my wounded leg. I had a Jezeel bullet through it some time before, and though it did not prevent me from walking, it ached wearily at every change in the weather. My practice has extended recently to the continent, said Holmes after a while filling up his old briar-root pipe. I was consulted last week on François de Viard, who, as you probably know, has come rather to the front lately in the French detective service. He has all the Celtic power of quick intuition, but he is deficient in the wide range of exact knowledge which is essential to the higher developments of his art. The case was concerned with a will and possessed some features of interest. I was able to refer him to two parallel cases, one at Riga in 1857 and the other at St. Louis in 1871, which have suggested to him the true solution. Here is the letter which I found this morning acknowledging my assistance. He tossed it over as he spoke a crumpled sheet of foreign note paper. I glanced my eyes down it, catching a profusion of notes of admiration with stray Magnifique, Coup de Bendre, and Tour de Force, all testifying to the ardent admiration of the Frenchman. He speaks as a pupil to his master, said I. "'Oh, he rates my assistance too highly,' said Sherlock Holmes lightly. "'He has considerable gifts himself. "'He possesses two out of the three qualities necessary for the ideal detective. "'He has the power of observation and that of deduction. "'He is only wanting in knowledge, and that may come in time. "'He is now translating my small works into French.' "'Your works?' "'Oh, didn't you know?' <laughs> He cried, laughing. Yes, I have been guilty of several monographs. They are all upon technical subjects. Uh, here, for example, is one Upon the Distinction Between the Ashes of the Various Tobaccos. In it I enumerate 140 forms of cigar, cigarette, and pipe tobacco, with coloured plates illustrating the difference in the ash. It is a point which is continually turning up in criminal trials, which is sometimes of supreme importance as a clue. "'If you can say definitely, for example, that some murder has been done by a man who was smoking an Indian nunca, "'it obviously narrows your field of search. "'To the trained eye there is as much difference between the black ash of a trichinopoly "'and the white fluff of bird's eye, as there is between a cabbage and a potato.' "'You have got an extraordinary genius for minutia,' I remarked. "'I appreciate their importance.' Here is my monograph upon the tracing of footsteps and some remarks upon the uses of Plaster of Paris as a preserver of impresses. Uh, here, too, is uh, a curious little work upon the influence of trade upon the form of the hand, with lithotypes types of the hands of slaters, sailors, cork-cutters, compositors, weavers, and diamond polishers. That is a matter of great practical interest to the scientific detective, especially in cases of unclaimed bodies or in discovering the antecedents of criminals. But I weary you with my hobby.' "'No. No, uh, not at all,' I answered earnestly. "'It is of the greatest interest to me, especially since I've got the opportunity of observing your practical application of it. But you did just speak now of observation and deduction. Surely the one, to some extent, implies the other one, yeah?' "'Why hardly,' he answered, leaning back luxuriously in his armchair and setting up thick blue wreaths from his pipe. For example, observation shows me that you have been to the Wigmore Street post-office this morning, but deduction lets me know that you went there, you dispatched a telegram. Right on both points, but I confess, I don't see how you arrived at it. It was a sudden impulse on my part, and I've mentioned it to no one. It is simplicity itself, he remarked, chuckling at my surprise. (laughs) So absurdly simple that an explanation is superfluous and yet it may serve to define the limits of observation and deduction. Observation tells me you have a little reddish mould adhering on your instep. Just opposite the Seymour Street office, they've taken up the pavement and thrown up some earth which lies in such a way. It's difficult to avoid treading in it as you enter. The earth of this particular reddish tint, which is found as far as I know, nowhere else in the neighbourhood. So much is observation. The rest is deduction. All right, then. "'Did you deduce the telegram?' "'Well, of course, I knew you had not written a letter, "'since I sat opposite you all morning. "'I see also in your open desk that you have a sheet of stamps "'and a thick bundle of postcards. "'What could you need to go into the post office for then "'but to send a wire? "'Eliminate all the other factors, "'and the one which remains must be the truth.' "'All right, in this case, it is certainly so,' "'I replied with a little afterthought.' The thing, however, is, as you say, of the simplest. Would you think me impertinent if I were to put your theories to a bit more of a severe test? On the contrary, he answered, it will prevent me from taking a second dose of cocaine. I should be delighted to look into any problem which you might submit to me. I've heard you say it's difficult for a man to have any object in daily use without leaving the impression of his individuality upon it. In such a way that a trained observer might read it. Alright, so now I've got a watch here which is recently come into my possession. Would you have the kindness to let me have your opinion upon the character or habits of its late owner? I handed him over the watch with some slight feeling of amusement in my heart, for the test was, as I thought, an impossible one and I intended it as a lesson against the somewhat dogmatic tone which he occasionally assumed. He balanced the watch in his hand, gazed hard at the dial, opened the back, examined the works, first with his naked eyes and then with a powerful convex lens. I could hardly keep from smiling at his crestfallen face when he finally snapped the case shut and headed it back. "'There are hardly any data,' he remarked. "'The watch has been recently cleaned, which robs me of my most suggestive facts.' Yeah, you're right, I answered. It was clean before it was sent to me. In my heart, I accused my companion of putting forward a most lame and impotent excuse to cover his failure. What data could he expect from an uncleaned watch? Though unsatisfactory, my research has not been entirely barren, he observed, staring up the ceiling with dreamy, lacklustre eyes. "'Subject to your correction, I should judge that the watch belonged to your elder brother, who inherited it from your father.' "'All right, that, you gather, no doubt from the H.W. upon the back, yeah?' "'Quite so. The W. suggests your own name. The date of the watch is nearly fifty years back, and the initials are as old as the watch, so it was made for the last generation. Jewelry usually descends to the eldest son, and he is most likely to have the same name as his father. Your father has, if I remember right, been dead many years.' It has therefore been in the hands of your eldest brother. Wrought so far,' said I. "'Anything else?' "'He was a man of untidy habits, very untidy and careless. He was left with good prospects, but he threw away his chances, lived for some time in poverty, with occasional short intervals of prosperity, and finally, taking to drink, he died. That is all that I can gather.' I sprang from my chair and limped impatiently around the room with considerable bitterness in my heart. This is unworthy of you, Holmes, I said. Could not have believed that you would have descended to this. Yeah? yet yeah, you've made inquiries into the history of my unhappy brother, and you pretend to deduce this knowledge in some fanciful way. You cannot expect me to believe you've read all this from that old watch. It's unkind, and to speak plainly, it's got a touch of charlatanism in it. My dear Doctor, he said kindly. Pray accept my apologies. Viewing the matter as an abstract problem, I had forgotten how personal and painful a thing it might be to you. I assure you, however, that I have never known that you had a brother until you handed me the watch. All right, then. now in a great name. Of all, it's wonderful did you get those facts. They're absolutely correct in every particular. Well, that is good luck. I could only say that it was a balance of probability. I did not expect it all to be so accurate. But it wasn't mere guesswork. No, I never guess. It's a shocking habit, destructive to the logical faculty. What seems strange to you is only so because you did not follow my train of thought or observe the small facts upon which large inferences may depend. For instance, um, I began by stating that your brother was careless. When you observe the lower part of the watch-case, you notice it is not only dinted in two places, but it is cut and marked all over from the habit of keeping other hard objects, such as coins or keys, in the same pocket. Surely it is no great feat to assume that a man who treats a fifty-guinea watch so cavalierly must be a careless man. Neither is it very far-fetched that a man who inherits one article of such value is pretty well provided for in other aspects.' I nodded to show that I followed his reasoning. It is very customary for pawnbrokers in England when they take a watch to scratch the number of the ticket with a pinpoint upon the inside of the case. It's more handy than a label, as there is no risk of the number being lost or transposed. There are no less than four such numbers visible to my lens on the inside of the case. Inference, that your brother was often at low water. Secondary inference, that he had occasional bursts of prosperity, or else he could not have redeemed the pledge. Finally, I ask you to look at the inner plate, which contains the keyhole. Look at the thousands of scratches all round the hole. Marks where the key has slipped. What sober man's key could have scored those grooves? But you will never see a drunkard's watch without them. He winds it at night, and he leaves these traces of his unsteady hand. Where is the mystery in all this?" "'Yeah, it's clear as daylight,' I answered. "'All right, I regret the injustice—which I did, dear. I should have had more faith in your marvellous faculty. "'Might I ask whether you've got any professional inquiry on foot at present?' "'None. Hence the cocaine. I cannot live without brain-work. "'What what else is there to live for? Stand at the window here. "'Was there ever such a dreary, dismal, unprofitable world? Is see how the yellow fog swirls down the street and drifts across the dun-coloured houses, "'or can be more hopelessly prosaic and material. "'What is the use of having powers?' doctor when there's no field upon which to exert them crime is commonplace existence is commonplace and no qualities save that which is commonplace have any function upon the earth i had opened my mouth to reply to his tirade when a crisp knock at our door and our landlady entered bearing a card upon the brass salver a young lady for you sir she said addressing my companion miss mary morstan he read Mm. "'I've got no recollection of the name,' Ask the young lady to step up, Mrs. Hudson. "'Oh, don't go, doctor. I should prefer that you remain.' very exciting folks welcome back to Sherlock (laughs) Sherlock Holmes the sign of four now we don't know what that means yet and as such we are once again in the position of having some pretty loosey-goosey questions to begin our chatter breaks but let's take a look at some things here we have just learned another important note about Sherlock Holmes last book of course uh, we have just Completed. Uh, depending on what order you're listening this in, we have just finished reading um, a study in scarlet. And don't forget, folks, we do have three more chapters to go today. So come on back quite soon. Um, I'm not even going to take a break. We're just going to chat a bit before we go on to into our uh, second chapter of the day. Um, but we just finished reading study of uh, a study in scarlet, a big uh, sort of uh, Mormon revenge tale, if that can be its own <laughs> its own genre. Um, but the The thing itself, the mystery itself, was certainly the focus, and we spent a bit of time at the very beginning uh, learning Sherlock Holmes's habits just a bit, we know that he is very particular, um, very, very deeply interested in certain uh, seemingly either boring or minute things, and yet at the same time, um, really uninterested in any issues of, I guess we'll call it pop culture of the era, very, very disinterested in such things. and uh, for all of his purposes, it seems to work quite well. He is a mystery solver. He is a, an, an unofficial consulting detective. When, uh, when the local police can't handle it, they bring it to uh, higher police. When the higher police can't handle it, they bring it to Scotland Yard. And when Scotland Yard can't handle it, they bring it to Sherlock Holmes. This is This is fascinating. Um, we have just found out a pretty significant detail about Sherlock Holmes, which is that his boredom takes perhaps more of a toll on him than it first would seem, right? We know bored people can get bored, right? I've, I've never liked only boring people get bored. That is, that is, I, I think possibly one of the more flawed <laughs> sayings out there. Um, uh, it's a matter of fact um, I really really like a line from Westworld uh, in this regard, Uh, the show I have not read Westworld, I'm only talking about the show but um, uh, (laughs) I believe the line is something along the lines of uh, it was like my father used to say only boring people get bored, but uh, I myself am of the opinion that only boring people do not feel boredom and therefore cannot conceive of it in others um I think it is it is uh an understatement to say that that uh, boredom affects Sherlock Holmes. Uh he can't handle it. He can't properly handle boredom. Um and for him boredom has a very very wide range of meaning. It is far reaching anything mundane, anything that's not an unassailable problem in fact, a totally incomprehensible puzzle kind of amounts to him as boredom. So a lot of his normal life is spent very bored. And what does he do with his boredom? He shoots it straight up his arm. Um, And he's been doing so for a while. We find uh, that Watson is, Watson, you know, Doyle by way of Watson, I'm gonna say Watson. Watson is describing um, the many marks upon Sherlock Holmes's arm. Sherlock Holmes has been shooting things up his arm uh, pretty regularly, and it sounds like his two sort of go-to's are cocaine or Morpheus. That's absolutely not... He's definitely not shooting Morpheus up his arm. Um, I got Morphling and uh, uh, from... (laughs) <laughs> Shooting Morpheus of his arm. Good Lord, I've got morphling uh, on the brain, and I tried to take a hard left out of morphling because um, we were talking about that during our our last Thursday series. Um, uh, the uh, the Hunger Games it took me forever to come up with that name. So morphine or cocaine, and uh, clearly he is a he is one of the folks uh, who is by way of considering it uh, in an analytical way. Um, he has sort of dulled down his own ability to process this, as, as an addiction, by by saying like, ah, oh, yes, a seven percent solution, right? By by saying that you are, you know, <laughs> doing this in these in in a really scientific fashion, he is sort of distancing himself from his own troubles with it, because there do appear to be troubles. And uh, I want to make it clear that I am not anti-drug in all respects. But let's look at how he's using this. Um, It is remedial, right? He's self-medicating here. This is not something he does for fun. This is something that he needs uh, as a way to overcome boredom. Um, uh, and, And by the number of marks upon his arm, I think we can assume this is a problem for Sherlock Holmes. This is this is a problem for Sherlock Holmes Um, our time with Sherlock Holmes has been spent watching him be very excited uh, very very interested he's been very engaged and now we come back to Sherlock Holmes and we find him in the depths of boredom Uh, these depths of boredom have not treated him very well and as such We gotta hope that he gets a case soon. And um, within this, we find a little bit of development in the relationship between these two characters. We find that um, these two have been, mm, these two have been getting a bit closer, right? This uh, we, we've we've heard about sort of the the years in which they've been together. We don't know precisely when this takes place in Universe, but um, we do know that uh, there's there's a, an interesting line that our friend gives off here. Um, our friend Watson says, remember, I'm speaking not only as a friend, but as a doctor to someone whose health I consider myself kind of responsible for. Not a direct quote, obviously, but that is, in essence, uh, the uh, kind of the the new nature of their relationship, right? This is this is progressed from a simple matter of interest, you know, as a as a bored uh, retired army doctor. uh, It's progressed from simply being interested in an odd character to genuine friendship. That's where we are. That's how we shall proceed. Everyone, it has been absolutely grand let's launch into our next chapter, in which we must hope Sherlock finds something to do. (laughs) Chapter Two, The Statement of the Case. Miss Morstan entered the room with a firm step and an outward composure of manner. She was a blonde young lady, small, dainty, well-gloved, and dressed with the most perfect taste. There was, however, a plainness and simplicity about her costume which bore in it a suggestion of limited means. The dress was a somber grayish-beige, untrimmed and unbraided, and she wore a small turban of the same hue relieved only by a suspicion of white feather upon the side her face had neither regularity of feature nor beauty of complexion but her expression was sweet and amiable and her large blue eyes were singularly spiritual and sympathetic in an experience of women which extends over many nations and three separate continents i have never looked upon a face which gave a clearer promise of a refined and sensitive nature I could not but observe that, as she took a seat which Sherlock Holmes placed for her, her lip trembled, her hand quivered, and she showed every sign of intense inward agitation. "'I've come to you, Master Holmes,' she said, "'because you once enabled my employer, Mrs. Cecil Forrester, to unravel a little domestic complication. She was much impressed by your kindness and skill.' Um, Mrs. Cecil Forrester?' he repeated thoughtfully. I believe that I was of some slight service to her. The case, however, as I remember it, was a very simple one.' "'She did not think so, but at least you cannot see the same of mine. I can hardly imagine anything more strange, more utterly inexplicable, than the situation in which I find myself.' Holmes rubbed his hands, and his eyes glistened. He leaned forward in his chair with an expression of extraordinary concentration upon his clear-cut, hawk-like features. "'State your case,' said he, in brisk business tones. "'I felt that my position was an embarrassing one.' Uh, you will, I'm sure, excuse me,' I said, rising from my chair. "'To my surprise, the young lady held up her gloved hand to detain me. "'If your friend,' she said, "'would be good enough to stop, he might be of inestimable service to me.' "'I relapsed into my chair. "'Okay, now—' I'm about to embark on a long bit of exposition here, so kind of got to prepare myself. Briefly, she continued, the facts are these. My father was an officer in the Indian regiment who sent me home when I was quite a child. My mother was dead and I had no relative in England. I was placed, however, in a comfortable boarding establishment at Edinburgh and there I remained until I was 17 years of age. In the year 1878, my father, who was senior captain of his regiment, obtained 12 months leave and came home. He telegraphed me from England. He had returned all safe and directed me to come down at once to London, giving me the Langham Hotel as his address. His message, as I remember, was full of love and kindness. Upon reaching London, I drove to the Langham. I was informed that Captain Morstan was staying there. But he had gone out the night before and had not yet returned. I waited all day. I waited all day without news of him. That night, on the advice of the manager of the hotel, I communicate with the police, and the next morning we advertised in all the papers. Our inquiries led to no result, and from that day to this, no word has ever reached me of my unfortunate father. He came home with his heart full of hope to find some peace, to find some comfort and instead she put her hand to her throat and a choking sob cut short the sentence the date asked holmes opening his notebook he disappeared upon the third of december 1858 nearly ten years ago his luggage remained at the hotel There was nothing in it to suggest a clue. Some clothes, some books, and a considerable number of curiosities from the Andaman Islands. He had been one of the officers in charge of the convict guard down there. Has he got any friends in town? Only one that we know of. A Major Sholto, of his own regiment, the 34th Bombay Infantry. The Major had retired some little time before and lived at Upper Norwood. We communicated with him, of course, but he did not even know that his brother-officer was in England. Hmm. A singular case, remarked Holmes. I've not yet described to you the most singular part. About six years ago, to be exact, upon the 4th of May, 1882, an advertisement appeared in the Times asking for the address of Miss Mary Morstan and stating that it would be to our advantage to come forward. There was no name or address appended. I had had that I had at that time just entered into the family of Mrs. Cecil Forrester in the capacity of governess. By her advice, I published my address in the advertisement column the same day there arrived through the post a small card box addressed to me, which I found contained a very large and lustrous pearl. No word of writing was enclosed. Since then, every year upon the same date, there has always appeared a similar box containing a similar pearl without any clue as to the sender. They've been pronounced by an expert to be of a very rare variety and of considerable value. You can see for yourselves that they are very handsome. She opened a flat box as she spoke and showed me six of the finest pearls I had ever seen. Your statement is most fascinating, said Sherlock Holmes. Has anything else occurred to you? Yes, and no later than today. That's why I've come to you. This morning I received this letter— which you will perhaps read for yourself? Thank you, said Holmes. The envelope, too, please. Postmark, London. Set a date, July 7. Mm. Man's thumb mark upon the corner, probably postman. Best quality paper. Envelopes at sixpence a packet, particularly man in his stationery. No address. "'Be at the third pillar from the left, "'outside the Lyceum Theatre tonight at seven o'clock. "'If you are distrustful, bring two friends. "'You are a wronged woman and shall have justice. "'Do not bring police. "'If you do, all will be in vain. "'Your unknown friend.' "'Well, really, this is a very pretty little mystery. "'What do you intend to do, Miss Morstan?' "'That's exactly what I want to ask you.' "'Well, then we most certainly shall go.' You and I, and yes, why, Doctor Watson, is the very man your correspondent says two friends. He and I have worked together before. Oh, but would he come? She asked, with something appealing in her voice and expression. I uh, oh, should be proud and happy," said I fervently, "if I can be of any service." You're both very kind," she answered. "I've led a retired life, and I've got no friends who I could appeal to. If I'm here at six, it will do, I suppose." "'Yes, you must not be any later,' said Holmes. "'There is one point, however. "'Is this handwriting the same that is upon the pearl-box addresses?' "'I've got them here,' she answered, producing a half-dozen pieces of paper. "'You are certainly a model client. "'You have the correct intuition. "'Let us see now.' He spread out the papers upon the table, and gave little darting glances from one to the other. "'They are disguised hands, except the letter,' he said presently. "'But there can be no question as to the authorship.' You see the irrepressible Greek E, how it would break out. And that little twirl of the final S, they are undoubtedly by the same person. I should not like to suggest false hopes, Miss Morstan. But is there any resemblance between this hand and that of your father? Nothing could be more unlike. I expected to hear you say so. We shall look out for you, then, at six. Pray allow me to keep the papers. I shall look into the matter before then. It is only half past three. Au revoir, then." our visitor said, and with a bright, kindly glance from one to the other of us, she replaced her pearl box in her bosom and hurried away. Standing at the window, I watched her walking briskly down the street, until the grey turban and white feather were but a speck in the somber crowd. "'What a very attractive woman!' I exclaimed, turning to my companion. He lit his pipe again and leaned back with drooping eyelids. "'Is she?' he said, languidly. "'I did not observe. "'You are truly an automaton. "'You're a calculator,' I replied. "'There is something positively inhuman about you at times.' "'He smiled gently. "'It is of the first importance,' he said, "'not to allow your judgment to be biased by personal qualities. "'A client to me is a mere unit.' a factor in a problem. The emotional qualities are antagonistic to clear reasoning. I assure you, the most winning woman I ever knew was hanged for poisoning three little children for their insurance money, and the most repellent man of my acquaintance is a philanthropist who has spent nearly a quarter of a million upon the London poor. Well, In this case, however... I never make exceptions. Exception disproves the rule. Have you ever had occasion to study character and handwriting? What do you make of this fellow's scribble? It's... ''Legible and regular,'' I answered. ''A man of business habits in some force of character.'' Holmes shook his head. ''Look at his long letters,'' he said. ''They hardly rise above the common herd. That D might be an A, that I might be an E. Men of character always differentiate their long letters, however illegibly they might write. There is vacillation in his case and self-esteem in his capitals. I am going out now. I've got some few references to make.'' Let me recommend this book, one of the most remarkable ever penned. It is Winwood Reed's Martyrdom of Man. I shall be back in an hour. I sat in the window with the volume in my hand, but my thoughts were far from the daring speculations of the writer. My mind ran upon our late visitor. Her smiles, the deep, rich tones of her voice, the strange mystery which overhung her life. If she were seventeen at the time of her father's disappearance, she must be seven and twenty now a sweet age when youth has lost its self-consciousness and become a little sobered by experience I sat and amused until such dangerous thoughts came into my head that I hurried to my desk and plunged furiously into the latest treatise upon pathology what was I an army surgeon with a weak leg and a weaker banking account that I should dare to think of such things she was a unit a factor nothing more If my future were black, it was better surely to face it like a man than to attempt to brighten it by mere will-o'-the-wisps of the imagination. All right, Proteus Spade has been doing some investigating. Proteus <laughs> Spade says, I was trying to figure out why this all seems so familiar and then realized, oh, the Great Mouse Detective. Yes, indeed, Great Mouse Detective will do it. Folks, we've got two more chapters to read. Stick with us here. Um, but yeah, Proteus Spade says, So this reference to a repellent philanthropist might actually be a reference to a real figure of the time. Um, why, yes, Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> I know I I do actually you know what the 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 timing on that I don't want to make you sit here and watch me google it but the timing on that could be interesting couldn't it let's see can I google two things really quickly yes I think so Um, let me go ahead and say a Christmas Carol let's see let's see when was this published um let's see published 1843 1843 and we're in the 1890s now so you know what and I, I do think Proteus Spade was referring to an actual real life person but at the same time you know <laughs> at the same time uh, right this is what I mean Proteus spade that means that this would have been extant um hey if I'm a philistine <laughs> look what have I what have I ever what have I ever called myself I'm the I'm the bad boy of literature. I'm not. Uh, I'm no scholar myself, but uh, no the, uh, the the Christmas Carol potentially being a uh, a fun reference. Uh, these stories were kind of written, I think, in similar in similar fashion, right? Uh, the The audiences are not identical, but I do think that they are similar, um, uh, and uh, much in the same sort of uh, uh, spheres of audience, just in general in their lives, not this you know book considered uh oh boy speak sam uh not this story compared to that story necessarily but uh just the the whole bodies of work of charles dickens and um uh and arthur conan doyle uh simply being that uh they were released in similar sort of uh, newspaper pattern oftentimes uh interspersed by novels and we have got a uh, I know, I know Proteus Spade. Now come on, now come on a second here. I have made, we have made a number of comparisons to uh, to Arthur Conan Doyle and like vloggers. Excuse me, not Arthur Conan Doyle, but to to Dr. Watson and vloggers. So let us not say, let us not say... Victorian and Edwardian were too far for two authors to be considered with one another. As a matter of fact, we could go far, as far back as Greece and continue to talk about the different social classes to which they appealed. Um, so that is that is more of what I'm saying. Um, uh, simply that the uh, the styles of delivery in which these two authors uh, uh, sort of operated were similar, and um, I think that uh, you know largely these were not. Uh, I don't know the. The fiction that they were writing, I think, was designed to appeal to similar folk, with the exception that I do think The Christmas Carol did have a particular bent uh, wherein Dickens was hoping it would appeal to uh, some higher class folk and actually serve as a bit of a reminder to um, <laughs> to your, your fellow man. Um, but, but, I do think some comparisons are apt. Um, but yeah, we find that uh, our our heroes are finally once again upon an adventure. Sherlock seems engaged once again. We know that there is uh, there's something in Sherlock that uh, could easily be turned off by the solution to something suddenly becoming obvious. We'll have to watch out for that one. Um, hopefully, there is no you know there, there's no big moment here in the next chapter where it's like oh yeah, she's been sending him to herself for, uh, I guess laundering pearls. Is pearl laundering a thing? Do we suppose probably not. Probably not. I don't think. I guess it could be, couldn't it? Laundering through pearls. <laughs> I see some some different clarifications having been made in chat. Um, uh, but yeah, no this this uh, this era, I think is it's an interesting time, uh, and uh, I do believe that we are reading some of the the pop lit of these era. Um, There was one more thing. What was it? I don't remember. Oh, I do remember, but it doesn't come come along until like three or four books down the line. So, never mind! (laughs) Everybody, thank you so much for joining me. What do you say we just launch into our next chapter? Uh, First, a very small spot of review. Chapter one of... The sign of four. Sherlock and Watson are hanging out in the apartment. Uh, Sherlock is bored as hell, and he is consuming cocaine, which at the time I don't believe is illegal, but does have its negative uh, uh, habits known. Its negative qualities are, I believe, a known entity because Watson is trying to warn him off of this stuff, but Sherlock simply cannot cope with being bored. Um, Now, this is, you know what? We are in. We're, we're in the review phase. If you want to f- learn more about that, we had a discussion about it between chapters one and two. Um, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't elongate our our review periods. Um, but he's bored. Luckily, a problem presents itself. Um, we find that a woman enters, uh, Mrs. Marsden. Am I right about that? Call, call on, call on. Come on. Come on, where's the name at? Morstan, there we go. Miss Morston. Miss Morston enters and says, Sherlock Holmes, I've got a problem for you. Um, you helped my employer. Uh, I am essentially a nanny uh, for these folks. And, um, well, you helped my employer. Could you perhaps help me? She is dressed uh, uh, well and nicely, but nicely for someone uh, who does not have a lot of money and... Uh, she produces in the midst of this conversation a bunch of pearls okay what's all this well uh she says my father disappeared 10 years ago uh he was a soldier he sent me away to live in edinburgh for a while because he was uh a soldier in india um and he sent me to live in edinburgh he said uh uh, when i you know after i turned i believe it was 17 um he sent me a letter from london saying i'm here come to this hotel i'm waiting for you he seemed energetic he seemed full of life he seemed happy She goes down to London. She goes to this hotel in question. She asks about him because he's not there and they say, oh yeah, he went out last night. We haven't seen him. She waits another day. She gets involved, gets the police involved. He does not show up for 10 years. He has not made an appearance. Her father is missing. It's been 10 years. Um, And that is not the most strange part of all this. The most strange part is that she has been receiving packages every year. Um, let me let me verify the year because I want to say that there is um, about six years ago, the exact date being May 4th, 1882. Um, basically, uh, she keeps getting... Uh, She keeps getting these packages and in each package is a really expensive pearl and nothing else Uh, And then finally she does get something else Uh, And this is why she has come forward to ask uh, Sherlock his advice She gets a letter saying basically be outside this theater at 7 o'clock tonight You can bring some friends uh, Because I know it would be scary to come forward like this But you have been wronged and you will have justice Miss Morstan Sherlock says all right I make one and Dr. Watson makes two. Let's go! And so we are headed to the theater! chapter three in quest of a solution it was half past five before holmes returned he was bright eager and in excellent spirits a mood which in his case alternated with fits of the blackest depression there's no mystery in this matter he said taking his cup of tea which i had poured for him the facts appeared to admit of only one solution what you've solved it already well that would be too much to say. I have discovered a suggestive fact. That is all. It is all very very suggestive however the details are still to be added. I've just found on consulting with the back files of the times that Major Sholto of Upper Norwood, late of the 34th Bombay Infantry died upon the 28th of April 1882. All right. I uh, may be a very obtuse Holmes, but I fail to see what this suggests. No? You surprise me. Look at it this way then. Captain Morstan disappears. The only person in London whom he could have visited is Major Sholto. Major Sholto denies having heard that he was in London. Four years later, Sholto dies. Within a week of his death, Captain Morstan's daughter receives a valuable present, which is repeated from year to year and now culminates in a letter which describes her as being a wronged woman. What wrong can it refer to except this deprivation of her father? And why should the presents begin immediately after Sholto's death? Unless that is Sholto's heir knows something of the mystery and desires to make compensation. Have you any alternative theory which could meet the facts? It put, yeah, what a strange compensation though and how strange he made why too does he write a letter now rather than six years ago again the letter speaks of giving her justice what justice can she have it's too much to suppose that her father's still alive there's no other justice in her case that you know of There no are difficulties certainly difficulties said like Sherlock Holmes pensively but uh, expedition of tonight will solve them all Uh, "'Here's a four-wheeler, and Miss Morstan is inside. "'Are you all ready? "'We'd better go down, then, for it's a little past the hour.' "'I picked up my hat and my heaviest stick, "'but I observed that Holmes took his revolver from his drawer "'and slipped it into his pocket. "'It was clear that he thought our night's work might be a serious one.' "'Miss Morstan was muffled in a dark cloak, "'and her sensitive face was composed but pale.' She must have been more than woman if she did not feel some uneasiness at the strange enterprise upon which we were embarking, and yet her self-control was perfect, and she readily answered the few additional questions which Sherlock Holmes put to her. "'Major Sholto was a very particular friend of Papa's,' she said. "'His letters were full of allusions to the Major. He and Papa were in command of the troops at the Andaman Islands, so they were thrown a great deal together. By the way, a curious paper was found in Papa's desk, which no one could understand.' I don't suppose it might be of the slightest importance but i thought that you might care to see it so i brought it with me it's right here holmes unfolded the paper carefully and smoothed it out upon his knee he then very methodically examined it all over with his double lens it is paper of indian manufacture he remarked it has at some time been pinned to a board the diagram upon it appears to be of a plain, large building with numerous holes, corridors, passages. At one point is a small cross done in red ink, and above it is 3.37 from left in faded pencil writing. In the left-hand corner is a curious hieroglyph, like four crosses in a line with their arms touching. Beside it is written, in very rough and coarse characters, the sign of four. Jonathan Small, Mahomet Singh, Abdullah Khan, Dost Akbar. No, I I confess I do not see how this bears upon the matter, and yet it is evidently a document of importance. It has been very carefully kept in a pocket-book, for the one side is as clean as the other. It was in his pocket-book when he found it. Preserve it carefully, then, Miss Morstan, for it may prove to be of use to us. I begin to suspect that this matter may turn out to be much deeper and more subtle than at first I supposed. I must reconsider my ideas." He leaned back in the cab, and I could see by his drawn brow and his vacant eye he was thinking intently. Miss Morstan and I chatted in an undertone about our present expedition and its possible outcome, but our companion maintained his impenetrable reserve until the end of our journey. It was a September evening, not yet seven o'clock, but the day had been a dreary one, and a dense, drizzly fog lay low upon the great city. Mud-colored clouds drooped sadly over the muddy streets. Down the strand the lamps were but misty splotches of diffused light which threw a feeble circular glimmer upon the slimy pavement. The yellow glare from the shop windows streamed out into the steamy, vaporous air and threw a murky, shifting radiance upon the crowded thoroughfare. There was, to my mind, something eerie and ghost-like in the endless procession of faces which flitted across these narrow bars of light. Sad faces and glad, haggard and merry— Like all humankind, they flitted from the gloom into the light, and so back into the gloom once more. I am not subject to impressions, but the dull, heavy evening and the strange business upon which we were engaged combined to make me nervous and depressed. I could see from Miss Morstan's manner she was suffering from the same feeling. Holmes alone could rise superior to petty influences. He held open his notebook upon his knee, and from time to time he jotted down figures and memoranda in the light of the pocket lantern. At the Lyceum Theater, the crowds were already thick at the side entrances. In front, a continuous stream of hansoms and four wheelers were rattling up, discharging their cargoes of shirt fronted men and beshawled bediamonded women. Winiman, winiman, not quite. Bediamonded is a hell of a word. Discharging their cargoes of shirt fronted men and beshawled bediamonded women. Women, it did it again. <laughs> bediamonded, it's getting me. Okay. Now, I don't often get stuck on one, but I can feel this one c- trying to creep up on me. Not not. It's just I, if I say if I say not x-word, I'm just going to get the word lodged even more. women. women. Oh, pretty spade has put it in phonetically. Now I'm really going to be messed up. Discharging their cargoes of shirt-fronted men and beshawled, but diamonded women. We had hardly reached the third pillar, which was our rendezvous, before a small, dark, brisk man in the dress of a coachman accosted us. "'Are you the parties who come with Miss Morstan?' he asked. "'I'm Miss Morstan, and these two gentlemen are my friends,' she said. He bent a pair of wonderfully penetrating and questioning eyes upon us. "'You will excuse me, Miss,' he said in a certain dogged manner, "'but I was to ask you to give me your word that neither of your companions is a police officer.' I give you my word on that, she answered. He gave a shrill whistle, at which a street urchin led across a four-wheeler and opened the door. The man who had addressed us mounted to the box, while we took our places inside. We had hardly done so before the driver whipped up his horse and plunged away at a furious pace through the foggy streets. The situation was a curious one. We were driving to an unknown place on an unknown errand. Yet our invitation was either a complete hoax, which was an inconceivable hypothesis, or else we had good reason to think that important issues might hang upon our journey. Miss Morstan's demeanor was as resolute and collected as ever. I endeavored to cheer her and amuse her by reminiscences of my adventures in Afghanistan, but to tell the truth, I was myself so excited at our situation and so curious as to our destination that my stories were slightly involved. To this day, she declares that I told her one moving anecdote as to how a musket looked into my tent at the dead of night and how I fired a double-barreled tiger cub at it. At first, I had some idea as to the direction where we might be traveling, but soon, what with the pace, the fog, and my own limited knowledge of London, I lost my bearings, and I knew nothing, save that we seemed to be going a very long way. Sherlock Holmes was never at fault, however, and he muttered the names as the cab rattled through the squares and in and out by torturous by-streets. "'Rochester Row,' said he. "'Now Vincent Square. Now we come out in the Vauxhall Bridge Road. We're making for the Surrey side, apparently. Yes? Yes, I thought so. Now we're on the bridge. You can catch glimpses of the river.' "'We did indeed get a fleeting view of a stretch of the Thames, with the lamps shining down the broad, silent water.' but our cab dashed on, and was soon involved in a labyrinth of streets upon the other side. Wordsworth Road, said my companion, Priory Road, Lark Hall Lane, Stockwall Place, Robert Street, Cold Harbor Lane. Our quest does not appear to take us to very fashionable regions. We had indeed reached a questionable and forbidding neighbourhood. Long lines of dull brick houses were relieved only by the coarse glare and tawdry brilliance of public houses on the corner. Then came rows of two-storied villas, each with a fronting of a miniature garden, and then again interminable lines of new staring brick buildings, the monster tentacles which the giant city was throwing out into the country. At last the cab drew up at the third house in a new terrace, None of the other houses were inhabited, and that at which we stopped was as dark as its neighbors, save for a single glimmer at the kitchen window. Upon our knocking, however, the door was instantly thrown over by a Hindu servant clad in a yellow turban, white loose-fitting clothes, and a yellow sash. There was something strangely incongruous in this figure, framed in the commonplace doorway of a third-rate suburban dwelling-house. The Sahib waits for you, the Sahib waits for you, he said. And even as he spoke, there came a high, piping voice from some inner room. "'Show them in to me, Kitmutka! it cried. "'Show them straight in to me!' fascinating. Who would have thought it? (laughs) All right, that is the end of chapter three. We got one more to go today, and I don't think I'm going to take a break first. I think I'm just going to roll on through. Um... Um, yes, indeed, Pretty Spade, a double-barreled tiber- tiger cub. I read it incorrectly at first, or I should just say with the with the incorrect intonation, but yes, I believe the goof is, yeah, at one point uh, he told me a story about how a gun peeked into his tent and he shot a tiger at it. Probably not the order in which those words were supposed to land. Uh, but Pretty Spade also notes Cold Harbor, an area so unpleasant it was also used as slang for hell. Welcome to Cold Harbor. Not a great spot, Um, which is funny because it is, you know, it's described here as essentially a new suburb. And these days, I think there are absolutely uh, uh, spots in which the, um, in in which uh, like a, a new suburb, like a totally uninhabited new suburb could be considered super creepy. And yet, like hellish is not the way that I would typically describe them, right? Um... But uh, it, it, is, it is described as a new suburb here, right? Um, where is the proper designation for this? Uh, here we go. Um, interminable lines of new staring brick buildings, right? So we've got these two-storied villas, uh, each one with a, a miniature garden in front, um, long lines of dull brick houses, uh, basically, uh, and then goes on to say, the monster tentacles, which the giant city was throwing out into the country, right? So we're on the suburbs, right? We've we've headed out of Maine, London. Um, we're out in the suburbs now, and uh, apparently in a spot that is not too friendly. Um, but it does say that uh, these are new, uh, uh, let's see, interminable lines of new staring brick buildings. Um, I don't know, it makes me wonder either what they're, scale of reference is for the word new because of course there are some very, very old places uh, in in towns like London and it's very possible that they're, they're when they say new they mean like yeah within the last 100 years or so <laughs> um uh, and as such, you know, very strange. Uh, uh th- this new development, this new suburb out in out in the uh, the edges of London apparently has already become a pretty dark place. Um, but it's possible that uh you know Cold Harbor Lane has you know come to mean <laughs> it came to be slang for hell at some point much later on. And when Sherlock here says our quest does not appear to take us to very fashionable regions, he simply means like yeah well no because then the very next line is we had indeed reached a questionable and forbidding neighborhood i don't know it's funny i wonder what the what the connotations were around like new housing developments around that time you know because this is this is essentially what that is we have arrived at a a new suburb Uh, and i know i find new suburbs to be pretty creepy but not in like more in an existential way, kind of in a in an almost Lovecraftian way, not in not in like a, a Sherlock Holmes mystery solving sorts of ways. <laughs> um, Pretty Spade says new in eighteen eighties would probably mean eighteen eighties because wiring with electricity begins then. Um, I would say very possibly. Um, Um, But typically I want to say that refers to like individual houses I wanted to say but yeah yeah, this is um, I I think you probably have a deeper knowledge of this kind of era than I do Uh, but overall very curious and uh, this is one of those great things where we can look at the reactions of the characters and see just how strange are we supposed to take this well. Pretty strange, um, as we find that there is uh, a, a very dignified servant standing in the door of this, like, you know, imagine going on a dark and stormy day out into a a brand spanking new suburb of Chicago or whatever the relevant uh, big big city is near you. Dark and stormy day. You head out into this suburb, it appears to be pretty unpopulated, kind of a new area, and it's just, you know, a new a new suburb, uh, you know, like little three bedrooms, four bedrooms, that kind of thing, and uh, you step to the front door of one of them, and all of the houses along the street are totally dark, there's a single light on in one of these buildings, you walk up to the front door and it's answered by like a butler in a bow tie and coattails, Uh, You know, holding like a silver tray and with the towel over the arm and all that, right? It's, It's an odd place to find this person. Interesting. Let's find out who is it that calls from the depths of this strange house for the guests to be brought forward. I had some art for this and I don't know where I put it. <laughs> um, oh, did I just not apply it yet? Hold on. It's here. It's here somewhere. I'm just gonna drop it in place. Ah! Ah! Where's my where are my assets at? I've I've lost my assets. I can hear I can hear a mama cass wandering about the house. It's very spooky. Y'all might have to save me. Is that cool? Will you save me if Cass is being super spooky? Alright. Oop, what did I title it? Because I don't see it here. Here we go. Oh, no, that's for the next chapter. Oh, no! Oh, no! Okay, well, instead, let's just go with... Um... This one. It's... It's... It's (laughs) (laughs) suburban-ish. Chapter 4. The Story of the Bald-Headed Man. We followed the servant down a sordid and common passage, ill-lit and worse-furnished, until we came to a door open upon the right, which he threw open. A blaze of yellow light streamed out upon us, and in the center of the glare there stood a small man with a very high head, a bristle of red hair all round the fringe of it, and a bald, shining scalp, which shot out from among it like a mountain peak from fir trees. He writhed his hands together as he stood, and his features were in a perpetual jerk, now smiling, now scowling, but never for an instant in repose. Nature had given him a pendulous lip and a too visible line of yellow and irregular teeth, which he strove feebly to conceal by constantly passing his hand over the lower part of his face. In spite of his obtrusive baldness, he gave the impression of youth. In point of fact, he had just turned his thirtieth year. "'Your servant, Miss Morstan,' He kept repeating in a thin, high voice, Your servant, gentlemen, pray step into my little sanctum, a small place, miss, but furnished to my own liking, an oasis of art in the howling desert of South London. We were all astonished by the appearance of the apartment into which he invited us. In that sorry house, it looked as out of place as a diamond of the first water in a setting of brass. The richest and glossiest of curtains and tapestries draped the walls, looped back here and there to expose some richly mounted painting or oriental vase. The carpet was of amber and black, so soft and so thick that the foot sank pleasantly into it as into a bed of moss. Two great tiger skins thrown athwart it increased the suggestion of Eastern luxury, as did a large hookah which sat upon a mat in the corner. A lamp in the fashion of a silver dove was hung from an almost invisible golden wire in the center of the room. As it burned, it filled the air with a subtle and aromatic odor. Mr. Thaddeus Sholto, said the little man, still jerking and smiling, that is my name. You are Miss Moston, of course, and these gentlemen. "'This is Mr. Sherlock Holmes, and this is Dr. Watson.' "'A doctor, hey? (laughs) he cried, with much excitement. "'Have you your stethoscope, might I ask you? Would you have the kindness? I have my grave doubts as to my mitral valve, if you would be so very good. The aortic I may rely upon, but I should value your opinion upon the mitral.' I listened to his heart, as requested, but I was unable to find anything amiss, save indeed that he was in an ecstasy of fear, for he shivered from head to foot. "'It appears to be normal,' I said. "'You've got no cause for uneasiness.' "'You will excuse my anxiety, Miss Morstan,' he remarked, airily. "'I am a great sufferer, and have long had suspicions as to that valve. I am delighted to hear that they are unwarranted. Had your father, Miss Morstan, refrained from throwing a strain upon his heart, he might have been alive now. I could have struck the man across the face, so hot was I at this callous and offhanded reference to so desil- so hot was I at this callous and off reference to so delicate a matter. Miss Morstan sat down, and her face grew white to the lips. I knew in my heart that he was dead, said she. "'I can give you every information,' said he. "'And what's more, I can do you justice, and I will, too, "'whatever Brother Bartholomew may say. "'I'm so glad to have your friends here, "'not only as an escort to you, but also as witnesses "'to what I am about to do and say. "'The three of us can show a bold front to Brother Bartholomew, "'but let us have no outsiders, no police or officials.' we can settle everything satisfactorily among ourselves without any interference nothing would annoy brother bartholomew more than any publicity he sat down upon a low settee and blinked at us inquiringly with his weak watery blue eyes for my part said holmes whatever you may choose to say will go no further i nodded to show my agreement that is well that is well said he May I offer you a glass of Chianti, Miss Morstan, or of Tokay? I, I, I keep no other wines? Shall I open a, a, a flask? No? No? Oh, well, then, I trust that you have no objection to tobacco smoke, to the mild balsamic odour of the eastern tobacco. I am a little nervous, and I f- find my hookah an invaluable sedative." He applied a taper to the great bowl, and the smoke bubbled merrily through the rosewater. We sat all three in a semicircle, with our heads advanced and our chins upon our hands, while a strange, jerky little fellow with his high, shining head puffed uneasily in the center. "'When I first determined to make this communication of you,' he said, "'I might have given you my address, but I feared you might disregard my request and bring unpleasant people with you. I took the liberty, therefore, of making an appointment in such a way that my man Williams might be able to see you first. I have complete confidence in his discretion, and he had orders, if you were dissatisfied, to proceed no further in the matter. You will excuse these precautions, but I am a man of somewhat retiring, and I might even say refined, tastes, and there is nothing more unaesthetic than a policeman. I have a natural shrinking from all forms of rough materialism. I seldom come in contact with the rough crowd. I I live, as you see, with some little atmosphere of elegance around me. I may call myself a patron of the arts. It is my weakness. (laughs) The 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 landscape is a genuine corot, and... "'Though a connoisseur might perhaps throw doubt upon that Salvatore Rosa, "'there cannot be the least question about the Borgereau. "'I am partial to the modern French school.' "'You will excuse me, Master Sholto,' said Miss Morstan, "'but I'm here at your request to learn something which you desire to tell me. "'It's very late, and I should desire that the interview be as short as possible.' "'At the best, it must take some time.' he answered. "'For we shall certainly have to go to Norwood and see Brother Bartholomew. We shall all go and try to get the better of Brother Bartholomew. He's very angry with me for taking the course which has seemed right to me. I had quite high words with him last night. You you cannot imagine what a terrible fellow he is when he's angry.' "'If we are to go to Norwood, perhaps it would be best to start out at once,' I ventured to remark. He laughed until his ears were quite red. That <laughs> oh, would hardly do, he cried. I don't know what he would say if I brought you in that sudden way. No, no, I, I, I must prepare you by showing you how we all stand to each other. I must tell you that there are several points in the story of which I am myself ignorant. I can only lay the facts before you as. I know them myself. Uh, My father was, as you may have guessed, Major John Sholto, once of the Indian Army. He retired some eleven years ago, and came to live at Pondicherry Lodge in Upper Norwood. He had prospered in India, and brought back with him a considerable sum of money, a large collection of valuable curiosities, and a staff of servants. With these advantages he bought himself a house, and lived in great luxury. My twin brother, Bartholomew, and I were the only children. I very well remember the sensation which was caused by the disappearance of Captain Morstan. We read the details in the papers, and knowing that he had been a friend of our father's, we discussed the case freely in his presence. He used to join our speculations as to what could have happened. Never for an instant did we suspect the whole secret, hidden in his own breast. That of all men he alone knew the fate of Arthur Morstan. We did know, however, that some mystery, some positive danger, overhung our father. He was a very fearful man of going out alone, and he always employed two prize-fighters to act as porters at Pondicherry Lodge. Oh, Williams, who drove you tonight, night was one of them. He was once lightweight champion of England, "'Our father would never tell us what it was he feared, "'but he had a most marked aversion to men with wooden legs. "'On one occasion he actually fired his revolver at a wooden-legged man "'who proved to be a harmless tradesman, canvassing for orders. We, "'We had to pay a large sum of money to hush the matter up. "'My brother and I used to think this a mere whim of my father's, "'but events have since led us to change our opinion.' early in 1882. My father received a letter from India, which was a great shock to him. He nearly fainted at the breakfast table when he opened it, and from that day he sickened to his death. That was the letter we could never discover. But I could see, as he held it, it was short and written in a scrawling hand— He had suffered for years from an enlarged spleen, but he now rapidly became worse, and toward the end of April we were informed he was beyond all hope, and that he wished to make a last communication with us. When we entered his room he was propped up with pillows and breathing heavily. He besought us to lock the door and come upon either side of the bed, and then, grasping our hands, he made a remarkable statement to us in a voice which was broken by much pain, and emotion. I shall try and give it to you in his very own words. I have only one thing, he said, which weighs upon my mind at this supreme moment. It is my treatment of poor Morstan's orphan. The cursed greed, which has been my besetting sin through life, has withheld from her the treasure, half of which at least should have been hers. And yet i have made no use of it myself so blind and foolish a thing is avarice the mere feeling of possession has been so dear to me that i could not bear to share it with another see that chaplet dipped with pearls upon the quinine bottle even that i could not part with although i had got it out with the design of sending it to her you 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 my sons who give her a fair share of the agra treasure but send her nothing, not even the chaplet, until I am gone. After all, men men have been as bad as this, and have recovered. I will tell you how Morstan died, he continued. He had suffered for years from a weak heart, but he concealed it from everyone. I alone knew it, when in India he and I, through a remarkable chain of circumstances, came into possession of a considerable treasure." I brought it over to England, and on the night of Morstan's arrival he came straight over here to claim his share. He walked over from the station, and was admitted by my faithful Lao Chodar, who is now dead. Moston and I had a difference of opinion as to the division of the treasure, and we came to heated words. Moston had sprung out of his chair in a paroxysm of anger, and he suddenly pressed his hand to his side. His face turned a dusky hue, and he fell backwards, cutting his head against a corner of the treasure-chest. When I stooped over him, I found to my horror that he was dead. For a long time I sat half distracted, wondering what I should do. My first impulse was, of course, to call for assistance, but I could not but recognize that there was every chance I would be accused of his murder, his death, at that moment of a quarrel, and the gash to the head would be—it would be black against me. Again, an official inquiry could not be made without bringing out some facts about the treasure, which I was particularly anxious to keep secret. He had told me that no soul upon the earth knew where he had gone. There seems to be no necessity why any soul should ever know. We don't get the reminder very often here, but I just want to make it clear. This is... This is a man talking about the dying words of his father, okay? Just something to keep in mind. So this is him sort of speaking his father's words verbatim as much as possible. So these these are not things that he himself um, uh, uh, witnessed. These are the words of his father upon his deathbed. I was still pondering over the matter when, looking up, I saw my servant... Lal Chowdar in the doorway. He stole in and bolted the door behind him. "'Do not fear, Sahib,' he said. "'No one need know that you have killed him. Let us hide him away, and who will be the wiser?' "'I did not kill him,' said I. Lal Chodar shook his head and smiled. "'I heard it all, Sahib,' said he. "'I heard you quarrel, I heard the blow, but my lips are sealed. All are asleep in the house. Let us put him away together.' "'That was enough to decide me. "'If my own servant could not believe my innocence, "'how could I hope to make it good "'before twelve foolish tradespeople in a jury box "'Lal and I disposed of the body that night, "'and within a few days the London papers "'were full of the mysterious disappearance of Captain Morstan. "'You will see from what I say "'that I can hardly be blamed in the matter. "'My fault lies in the fact that uh, we concealed "'not only the body but also the treasure.' and that I have hung to Morstan's share as well as my own. I wish for you, therefore, to make restitution. Put your ears down to my mouth. The treasure is hidden in... And at this moment, a horrible change came over my father's expression. His eyes stared wildly, his jaw dropped, and he yelled with a voice, a voice I can never forget. Keep him out! For Christ's sake, keep him out! We both stared around at the window behind us, upon which his gaze was fixed. A face was looking in at us, out of the darkness. We could see the whitening of the nose, where it was pressed against the glass. It was a bearded, hairy face, with wild, cruel eyes, and an expression of concentrated malevolence. My brother and I rushed toward the window, but the man was gone. When we returned to my father... His head had dropped, and his pulse had ceased to beat. We searched the garden that night, but found no sign of the intruder, save that just under the window, a single footmark was visible in the flowerbed. But for that one trace, we might have thought that our imagination had conjured that wild, fierce face. We soon, however, had another and more striking proof that there were secret agencies at work all around us. The window of my father's room was found open in the morning. His cupboards and boxes had been rifled, and upon his chest was fixed a torn piece of paper with the words, The Sign of Four, scrawled across it what that phrase meant, or who our secret visitor may have been, we never knew. As far as we can judge, none of my father's property had actually been stolen, though everything had been turned out. My brother and I naturally associated this peculiar incident with the fear which haunted my father during his life, but it is still a complete mystery to us." The little man stopped to relight his hookah and puffed thoughtfully for a few moments. We had all sat absorbed, listening to his extraordinary narrative. At the short account of her father's death, Miss Morstan had turned deadly white, and for a moment I feared she was about to faint. She rallied, however, drinking a glass of water, which I quietly poured out from a Venetian carafe on the side table. Sherlock Holmes leaned back in his chair with an abstracted expression and the lids drawn low over his glittering eyes. As I glanced at him, I could not help but think that on the very day he had complained bitterly of the commonplaceness of life, here we were. Here, at least, was a problem which would tax his sagacity to the utmost. Thaddeus Sholto looked from one to the other of us with an obvious pride at the effect which his story had produced, and then continued between the puffs of his overgrown pipe. "'My brother and I,' he said, were, as you imagine, much excited as to the treasure which my father had spoken of. For weeks and for months we dug and delved in every part of the garden without discovering its whereabouts. It was maddening to think that the hiding-place was on his very lips at the moment when he died. We could judge the splendour of the missing riches by the chaplet which he had taken out. Over this chaplet my brother Bartholomew and I had some little discussion. The pearls were evidently of great value, and he was averse to part with them, for, between friends, my brother was himself a little inclined to my father's fault. He thought, too, that if we parted with the chaplet it might give rise to gossip and finally bring us to trouble. It was all that I could do to persuade him to let me find out Miss Morstan's address, and send her a detached pearl at fixed intervals, so that she, at least, might never feel destitute. "'It was a kindly thought,' said our companion earnestly. "'It was extremely good of you.' The little man waved his hand deprecatingly. "'We were your trustees,' he said. That was the view which I took of it, though Brother Bartholomew could not altogether see it in that light. We had plenty of money ourselves. I desired no more. Besides, it would have been in such bad taste to have treated a young lady in a so scurvy a fashion. Le Manoir, go amener à crime. The French have a very neat way of putting these things. Our differences of opinion on this subject were so far that I thought it best to set up rooms for myself. So. I left the Pondicherry Lodge, taking the old Kiputgar and Williams with me. Yesterday, however, I learned that an event of extreme importance has occurred. The treasure has been discovered. I instantly communicated with Miss Morstan, and it only remains for us to drive out to Norwood and demand our share. I explained my views last night to Brother Bartholomew, so we shall be expected, if not welcome, visitors." Mr. Thaddeus Sholto ceased, and sat twitching upon his luxurious settee. We all remained silent, with our thoughts upon the new development which this mysterious business had taken. Holmes was the very first to spring to his feet. "'You have done well, sir, from first to last,' said he. "'It is possible that we might be able to make some small return by throwing some light upon that which is still dark to you. But, as Miss Morstan remarked just now, it is late, and we had better put the matter through without delay.' Our new acquaintance very deliberately coiled up the tube of his hookah and produced from behind a curtain a very long befrogged topcoat with astrakhan collar and cuffs this he buttoned up tightly in spite of the extreme closeness of the night and finished his attire by putting upon a rabbit skin cap and hanging lappets which covered the ears such that no part of him was visible save his mobile and peaky face my health is somewhat fragile he remarked as he led the way down the passage I am compelled to be a valetudinarian. Our cab was awaiting us outside, and our programme was evidently prearranged, for the driver started out at once, at a rapid pace. Thaddeus Sholto talked incessantly, in a voice which rose high above the rattle of the wheels. Bartholomew is a clever fellow, said he. How do you think he found out where the treasure was? He had come to the conclusion that it was somewhere indoors, so he worked out all the cubic space of the house and made measurements everywhere, so that not one inch should be unaccounted for. Among other things he found that the heights of the building was seventy-four feet, but upon adding together the heights of the separate rooms, and making every allowance for the space between, which he ascertained by borings, he could not bring the total to more than seventy feet. There were four feet unaccounted for. These could only be at the top of the building. He knocked a hole, therefore, in the lath and plaster ceiling of the highest room, and there, sure enough, he came upon another little garret above, which had been sealed up and was known to no one. In the centre stood the treasure chest, resting upon two rafters. He lowered it through the hole, and there it lies. He computes the value of the jewels at not less than half a million sterling.' At the mention of this gigantic sum we all stared at one another open-eyed. Miss Morstan, could we secure her rights, would change from a needy governess to the richest heiress in England. Surely it was the place of a loyal friend to rejoice at such news. Yet I am ashamed to say that selfishness took me by the soul, and that my heart turned as heavy as lead within me i stammered out a few words of congratulations, and then sat downcast, with my head drooped, deaf to the babble of our new acquaintance. He was clearly a confirmed hypochondriac, and I was dreamily conscious that he was pouring forth interminable strains of symptoms and imploring information as to the composition and action of innumerable quack nostrums, some of which he bore about in a leather case in his pocket. I trust that he may not remember any of the answers which I gave him that night.' Holmes declares that he overheard me caution him against the great danger of taking more than two drops of castor oil, while I recommended strychnine in large doses as a sedative. However that may be, I was certainly relieved when the cab pulled up with a jerk and the coachman sprang down to open the door. "'This, Miss Mostyn is Pondicherry Lodge,' said Mr. Thaddeus Sholto, as he handed her out." Well, there you have it, my good folks. Uh, we are embarked upon a new mystery, right? And it seems to be mysteries underneath mysteries, right? There is, a, there is the mystery of this woman, her, her father disappeared one night and was never seen again. This was 10 years ago. And then suddenly, six years ago, she starts receiving in the mail, pearls of huge value, individual pearls after after you know apparently whoever was trying to send them to her didn't know her address and so we we're we're at the first mystery this one is all uncovered pretty quickly assuming it's all true we find that uh we encounter mr sholto copley i'm joking um (laughs) the son of major sholto um you know, essentially, there are these two war buddies, right? One of them has a daughter, sends her away. This is Miss Morstan. Uh, one of them has twin boys. Uh, this is Sholto. And uh, uh, and one of these twin boys we have just met here, he's got this high voice and he seems to be very nervous all the time. And they have been sending these pearls uh, because it seems that upon the night they returned to England, uh, these two old war buddies bringing the treasure that they... Let's. I mean, let's let's be honest about this fact that they stole from from India. Um, we must assume uh, bringing these th- this treasure. Uh, they return to London, and upon the very night uh, when uh, Miss Morstan's father is supposed to claim his half of this treasure, he dies. He dies in the room with his old war buddy, and even this old war buddy's servant, even even Shol- Sholto's uh, servant. who was like right outside the door at the time, cannot be convinced that Sholto didn't murder this man. And so he thinks, you know what? If my servant, my loyal servant won't even believe it, how could I ever convince the police about this? And as a matter of fact, I really don't want the police to know much about the treasure. And so the two of them dispose of this woman's father's body. Um... Pearls are all well and good, but can we take a step back for a second and say that just to have her father go missing with no explanation is also pretty bad? And also, let's let's talk about one pearl per year. If anything, this would just drive a person slowly crazy, I think. In a convoluted way, they were trying to do right by her. Um, we have yet to meet Brother Bartholomew. Um... Uh, this is the twin of this person to who, who has done so much speaking in this last chapter, but um, they have been sort of considering how things are to progress with this treasure should they find it and officially at the end of this chapter, um, here's the reason why uh, after six years of sending pearls one at a time, uh, this man, the one of the two sons of Charl- uh, Sholto has officially decided, you know what we're gonna get we're gonna get Miss Marston Miss Morstan down here. Um it, it's it's time to get Miss Morstan down here um because the treasure has been found and it is your turn to claim half of it even if brother Bartholomew is not a big fan of this plan Brother Bartholomew apparently having been the one to find the treasure after all So it's back at this uh this place the Pondicherry Lodge um it appears to be in some other part of the sort of London circumference and uh folks that is where we find ourselves Next week, we shall be delving into Chapter 5, of course, but uh, for now, I simply say to you all, thank you very, very much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure, as usual. My name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories, and today has been Vintage Sidecar, where we shed some light on classic lit. You can find more about this channel and the things that we do here at linktree slash sidecarstories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot e slash Sidecar Stories. Uh, I want to say thank you very much to Madison for jumping in, Uh, always good to have a new person up in the mix, and uh, yeah, hold for sound. Always good to have a new person up in the mix, Uh, I hope you've enjoyed today, it's a good time to jump in, because we are jumping into our second book of the Sherlock Holmes series, Uh, and by some accounts, the first good book of the Sherlock Holmes series. Some folks did not care for the uh, for the last book uh, historically, I suppose, um, but uh, I thought it was fantastic. I really enjoyed that one, and so I think we are in for good things as we move on into our next story here. Uh, four chapters in out of twelve, uh, and to sort of give you all an idea, because I do I've I've planned out this book, we're gonna accomplish this whole thing in four episodes as well. Um, we are in, so we're doing chapters one through four. Uh, There are no, there's no part one and part two to this book. It's all just 12 chapters, Uh, but chapters one through four, chapters five through seven, chapters eight through 11, and chapter 12, because, um, let's see, Uh, the longest chapter we read today was uh, this most recent one, the one we just read. 4,000 words the longest chapter in this whole book is only 300 words longer than that it's also about 4,000 words um, except for the last chapter we get we get uh, you know three thousand two thousand two four thousand three thousand three four three four three, 3 two ten thousand the last chapter is ten thousand words so that one's gonna be a little bit different Folks, thank you so much for joining me. Of course, Tuesdays, you can find me here reading Sherlock Holmes for Vintage Sidecar. Wednesdays, we delve into the realms of Residus and other tabletop RPG adventures. Um, That is (laughs) Sidecannons, The RPG wing of Sidecar stories. On Thursdays, we have got Flying Sidecar, a voice actor's venture through some stories we all love. Uh, That, of course, brings us to Middle Earth, as we are reading through the Lord of the Rings right now. You can find all of these uh, in that link. Uh, Down toward the bottom, I've got a uh, special link designated for just the playlists, because that's a handy thing to have around. Uh, Everybody, we have read quite a few things here. I'm looking forward to reading quite a bit more. Um, As some of you know, we've passed our two millionth word uh, uh, quite a bit earlier this year. But, hey, we are... Crank along at a pace even greater than that, which we were (laughs) endeavoring to match before. Uh, Sandra says, I'll be leaving you all. Have a great day, and I will see you guys in Residus. Indeed. See y'all tomorrow in the realms of Residus. We have just just managed to heist our way into the little gate town. The little gate town of Fabra, which is actually a big old gate town. Uh, The gate town of Fabra stands at the end of... um, the Ponte de Vede Bridge, um, it is kind of, it's one of the only gate towns that is not attached directly to a big section of the towers, but instead uh, makes its way across this enormous bridge into the main body of the towers. Folks, we've infiltrated, and now we have to discover the Tower of Cryonis. Folks, thank you so much for joining me here. I will see you